It's a whole new political ball game, and the common good is outlawed in Australia. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 27th of May. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. So on this week's show, Craig, we're going to talk about the election. Yes. And um, it's changed a lot. Uh, so, and, and what we can do now, think about doing now to intervene in the, into the uh, political system even more. And we're going to talk about an economic policy in Australia which is um, has sabotaged our capacity to serve people. Uh, an economic policy, Robbie, that is seen as normal, but it couldn't be more foreign yep. to the general welfare of our country. Which yep. we've seen, we have seen this new, the, the former policy of general welfare in action, and it worked, but from an ideological, you know, neoliberal yep. uh, push and change in the 70s, you're seeing this idea of the general welfare you know, so we have, to, we have to smash it, and we're going to smash it with our postal bank. We're going to start smashing it even more. Yeah. All right. Um, before we begin, just remember to um, help us get the word out. So like the show, click, click like. Um, share the show as widely as possible. Um, if you're not a subscriber, please subscribe. And when you do, click the bell icon so you get um, notifications. Um, and Craig, also before we begin, um, I want to make mention, pay tribute to a dear friend of yours and mine, uh, Danny Hope, who is a stalwart of the, um, getting emotional now, the Citizens Party. 28 years, Robbie. 28 years in the Citizens Party. He died suddenly two nights ago, um, 74 years of age. Uh, we got to see him on election night um, over Zoom. I got to talk to him at length the next day. Danny was a, a, I mean, you know, the viewers won't appreciate this as much as we do. Our party exists because of people like Danny Hope. Um, he was a real cornerstone, delighted at what we've been able to do as a political party. A great Aussie larrikin. We're going we're, we're gonna to put a photo up, but I, we wanna play, I want to play the clip that he contributed to our Who We Are video that's on our website. So just um, have a quick look at that. Citizens Party a policy of national banking. National banking to me just seems to be the basis of all the problems that finance and infrastructure development runs into. The CEC or the Australian Citizens Party has been trying to press the government to start the Bradfield scheme, their reply always is not enough money. Um, that's not the truth. The truth is that the British Empire never wanted Australia to develop. And here we are still sitting here with say 25, 28 million people after, after sort of a couple of hundred years of occupation of this country. There's no intention, and that's the problem, there's no intention by the governments that we elect to actually do any of these things. There's a lot of rhetoric about, we'll do this, do that, but nothing ever happens. I find myself 
and the party think that a national bank, even a postal bank that we're pushing for at the moment, would be such an asset because while you're held at by the money power to ransom, country can't move and its, its hands are tied. As I mentioned before, I've been an earth moving contractor for 40 odd years. Our early days in earth moving, we worked out in the, uh, in the west in seismic exploration. Later on we moved to doing uh, reservoirs in the cotton industry down mainly down south of the border like New South Wales and, and uh, around um, the, the coast or the border towns of Chinchilla and Gundawindi and all that where uh, a lot of reservoirs were being built and we knew at the time through our organisation that the environmental movement was going to shut down all this uh, management of water and that and take it on themselves to decide who could use the water and who couldn't. Um, and we've seen what a mess that's been with the Murray-Darling Basin Scheme and our organisation did a lot of work to fight that and to bring that into some sort of sense and as we see now it's just been a total disaster as everything the government does. My interest in the party has never waned because the people in the party that work from the party as a permanent uh, actually put a lot of effort and all their life into that making things happen in this country that would otherwise not even get a mention. You probably never realise how much policy they affect and change for the betterment of people that don't even know we're about. We always get criticised as being anti-Semitic, racist, but they always throw that sort of language at people when there's no uh, intellectual argument that they can really have. I really appreciate the effort that the people in the party put up and what they fight against through their lives to try and make this country better. Thanks. Now Craig, we have to explain the face. Yeah. The, the, the loveliest, ugliest man in Australia. That face was the result of two plane crashes he survived. Um, he lived life to the full. Um, you know, he, he probably should have died yeah, well, we, you know, a million we, times. We have this saying, he's an old one-eyed bastard. Well, <laughs> he was a one-eyed... <laughs> he literally was a one-eyed guy, but he wasn't a bastard by any means, but that, that larrikinism comes through, you know, yeah. in the sense of who Danny, Danny is. He's a really one of the most decent fellows you could ever want and the, you know, represents the real fabric of what we have as part of our party and he's going to be very sadly missed. People support our party and our, our core supporters who are very, very generous in their financial contributions to our party as well, Craig, do it because they believe in our mission, they see themselves as part of our mission. Our motto, citizens taking responsibility, they can't do it full time, they do it through us and they, they help in it yeah. as any way they can. He was absolutely a cornerstone of that um, and he will be sorely missed. But when you think of the Citizens Party, you see our faces on the screen, there's, there's an army of people behind us he was one of the best of them. A growing army. <clears throat> so, on that note, let's move on to um, a different tone. It's a whole new political ball game. And Craig? He has gone. <laughs> that is the good news. The number one, I, I'm not ashamed to say it, my number one hope from this election was that man would be thrown out of that job, and he was. And he was, yep. I regard him as the most despicable Prime Minister in Australian history. 
He was soulless. He did not care. Every excuse, he, every time he was asked about a responsibility, it was never his responsibility. He's so much a tool of the neoliberalism that has destroyed this country for 40 years, he could not bring himself to ever do anything to help Australians when it mattered, right? Um, and, and, and the people of Australia threw him out. And they did it in a way which is rather unique because 31%, Robbie, of the Australian population did not vote for the major parties, either Labor or Liberal. 31%. Yep. And the Labor Party got in on the historical lowest vote that they've ever got in history because of the preferences from the Greens. Thanks to the magic of preferential voting. Uh, and, you know, the Greens supported Labor and Labor got in. Now, it's interesting though, Robbie, what we, when we look at the Greens and how they increased their vote, one of the key policies of the Greens is they opposed the war in China. And they actually came out supporting, uh, uh, you know, denouncing the current attitude towards they were the China. Only, they were the only more mainstream party prepared to go against that narrative. Exactly. Right? And so I take my hat off to them also, because the Citizens Party, people, people find it hard to um, <laughs> understand how the Citizens Party looks at the Greens, because as you know, we could, we could spend a 10-hour show on our differences with the Greens, right? We have more in-depth differences than any other party. However, we also know that they're not monsters and we're happy to collaborate on any, with any party when we have common ground. Um, and the other area was on banking. The Greens are one of the parties, as are people like One Nation and Bob Catter, etc., fundamentally committed to reforming the banking system. And that is very important. If you're not prepared to do that, we're not going to be able to fix anything else. So yeah, that was, I think, like the, the takeaway is the, two, the election shows the two-party stranglehold over Australia has been well and truly broken. The Labor Party got elected, yes, under those circumstances. The Liberals lost, though. Their primary vote was less than 24% of the vote. They, when John Howard won in 1996, the Liberals got 38% of the vote, and then, of course, there's the Nationals component. So just the Liberals' vote was 23.89 or whatever percent of the vote. The actual number of votes, 2.8 million, whereas John Howard got 4.2 million back in his day, right? So this was the see how the mighty have fallen. The liberal vote completely collapsed. And what happened, Rob, is you now got fifteen independents in the lower house. Yes. Now it's, it's, I I think it's hilarious where the major parties say, "Oh no, this is terrible. We're going to have a very unstable, uh, <laughs> unstable government because you've got all these people in there that are, that are independents." But look at the quality of the independents. You know, you've got a pediatric neurologist. You know, Dr. Monique Ryan. Uh, Ryan who's now been elected, these, these people are highly qualified to be in our parliament and they're not party hacks. No. They're not lawyers. Not that we've got everything against lawyers, but, I mean, <laughs> the point is that we, got three, we had three lawyers Weird. running for us this time, right? That's not a problem. But the point is they're not, they're not party apparatchiks that have been brought through from working in electoral offices yep. and so on and so forth. These are people with real-world experience. Therefore, when they look at issues... And, when, and we hope that when they look at the issues of the Postal Bank, they look at it from the, from the reality of what they know their electorate wants. And this is, this is really exciting for us, and it, it, it's much more exciting, in fact, coming into the last parliament. This one leaves enormous opportunities for us to, to really... And we are going well, to ramp up that's, the that's, Postal that's, Bank. That's the point, because I, I think um, people will have... Some people among our viewers, Craig, will have in their mind the, you know, the whole sort of the background of the Teal Independence... Simon Holmes a court money, etc. Well, you had Simon Holmes a court on this side and you had Clive Palmer on that side, right? Billionaires like playing with their money. 
However, when it comes to the people when they're in parliament, they're not, I don't care how they got in there. And, and I don't care that I disagree with them on some big issues probably. Um, but like I said, they are, they are um, you know, decent people until I see evidence otherwise. Um, uh, the, back at two, I remember 20 years ago when there was a backlash to the Iraq war, the backlash was actually quite strong in these blue ribbon liberal seats that have all been lost to these teal independents, but it, they had nowhere to go, that backlash. And the phenom- they, this, doc- this term, doctor's wives, oh, it's the doctor's wives turning on the Liberal Party. <laughs> well, no, now they're the actual doctors. The, the wives are other doctors, right? There's two, two of them are doctors and one's a CEO and, and whatever. Um, uh, you know, so uh, they will be in there and, yeah, people should approach them um, on their merits and pr- confront them uh, convey their views on policy and see, see how they respond. And of course, we look at the system that, that way the whole time. I want to come back to some aspect of that in a minute. Just let's go through. I just want to, like the Citizens Party didn't set the world on fire in, in many ways. You know, we weren't, we weren't ever going to win this election. Um, so yeah, officially Craig and I didn't win, if you're, if you're wondering. <laughs> uh, we were Senate candidates. Oh, baby, but, but maybe, Robbie, if you were preference and I was preference second, like... By the Liberal Party. By the Liberal Party who preference by... Palmer's Palmer, candidate, yeah. the UAP candidate, then we may have got it. Maybe, But yeah. see, then we, ideologically, we're, we're poles apart, so that won't happen. No, exactly. However, the good news, Craig, is our vote, our Senate vote in New South Wales, increased more than sixfold. And that's significant. And that's despite the usual parameters to do with our vote. They are, we, we get, it's, a, it's effectively a media blackout on the Citizens' Party. Plus, we are not a populist party. And... Regular viewers will know that we don't care if our position on China costs us votes, and it does. We know it's the right position to take, and we will take it. But it does that taking that approach does cost us votes. But that's fine. Um, we will persuade people over time, and you better hopefully sooner rather than later, so we don't end up in a war. But given that those constraints, we did very well on the back of um, a good candidates in Ann Lawler and Kingsley Lewin and Ann Lawler. Uh, a, a, a really interesting uh, new technology approach we took, mm-hmm. right, which was YouTube advertising. We did a lot of that in New South Wales. Um, plus, uh, first time we, we took our new party name to the election. Yeah, no, we, we used the uh, Google advertising. You know, we had four million ads close to in New South Wales targeting specific areas, and you can do this sort of thing. We put out nearly eight million ads nationally of, on the Postal Bank, you know, putting our ideas yeah. forward. You know, the 15-second uh, non-skippable ads. So that was a new technology, uh, Robbie. But I think on this issue of China, and I want to make it very clear, you know, one of the biggest gripes that people have is, oh, you can't trust political parties, you can't trust politicians. And if you, if you, if you wanted us to, uh, to fall into that category, then we would change our view, you know, to get votes. We don't do that, right? Because we are super conscious that we want to make sure, and we always have, we say what we think, yep. and we don't just guess it. Now, we're not we going to. We're not going to tell only, you what you, we think you want to hear. We're the only political party that spends eight thousand dollars a week producing this publication, with ten or twelve staff on it, in order to make sure that when we put something out, it's backed up by actual detailed research that we do ourselves. Yep. So when we say something, then we knew we know what we we were talking about, and if we don't say something. We don't. Yeah. So we leave that to other people. So and, and I think that that's the key. If you want if you want to 
You can trust the work that we do and the position that we take, and that's more important to us than votes. So, because over time, you have to win the confidence of the population, and you know, yep. we, we got the votes that we got in this particular election because we didn't run a huge number of lower house candidates. I think we had eight lower house candidates across, uh, across the, the country. Four of those were in New South Wales. So if we, we ran a very good um, campaign though in Wollongong, the city Cunningham, Alexis Garno Miller. And if, if, if we had have replicated that kind of campaign across all 48 seats in New South Wales, yeah. then our vote could have been tenfold. Yeah. Right? And so anyway, I'm just saying that because you know, going forward, these are the, the, the Citizens Party is going to have much more of an intention to build on that. Craig, one, other, one last comment on the election itself, though, which is something that we can share credit for. We shaped a certain dynamic in this election. Mm. And um, it's not when I say we can share credit, including our viewers who participated over the last two years. There is a, there is a narrative, and it's a true one, that Scott Morrison... Um, I mean, people turned on him personally, like I did, <laughs> right? Like I saw, I was privy to conversations last year with, with staunch, lifelong Liberal Party supporters who turned on him personally because they despised him. Um, and a, an element of that was to do with his treatment, his mistreatment of women. And so people will be familiar with that narrative. But the number one example that's held up for Morrison's mistreatment of women was what was done to Christine Holgate. And that was referenced on the Channel 9 News, Robbie. I was flabbergasted that they actually broadcast not, not just Christine Holgate sitting in her suffragette white uh, clothes, which yeah. incidentally, with, there's a whole story behind that. Allegra Spender, who won Wentworth, yes. her mother, the, the fashion designer Carla Zampatti, was the person who advised Christine to wear white. The, yeah, so you had, this, you had Christine sitting in white at the hearings, for the, for the, for the Senate hearings, and then they had... Uh, you know, Scott Morrison, she can go. And I think that's actually true. For once the media actually, they didn't go through all the details, but the actual operate, the, you know, the, the shaping of this entire uh, teal movement, where one of the issues were, were women's issues, came from our mobilisation with Christine Holgate to support her and the, the LPOs and everything like that, which many of the people... Because it was our mobilisation. Until we got involved, yeah. she was going to be a footnote in history, a fat cat executive who gave gold watches to overpaid yeah. Australia Post executives. We got involved and said, no, there's a different story here. And we're the ones that... And once we turned it around and people understood there was a different story, then they saw what was done to Christine Holgate in a different light. Yeah, right? we, we nearly got... We nearly got trapped into thinking, oh, it must be, you know, gold watches again. And then someone said, I think it was one of our... I think it might have been Melissa said, I, I don't... I don't think that's quite true, Robbie. And then we started to look under the surface and holy heck, yep. what, what a mess. Um, so, and, and I think, so we'll share credit with the LPO group, licensed, Angela Cramp and the Licensed Post Office group, who are staunch defenders of Christine, people like Bob Catter, and then the, the, the campaign mushroom from there, Pauline Hanson got involved. The Greens played a very important role in, in the, um, Sarah Hanson Young in the, in the um, inquiry. And the, 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 the narrative well and truly changed. And so since then, every time, ever since Morrison did that to Christine Holgate and then we were able to turn around public's, the public's understanding of it, every time he said something in the media where um, he, you know, he claimed to, anyway, in any way related to the, to the um, he was trying to put forward his credentials of you know, how, he, how he is good to women, right? 
Twitter would light up with, what about Christine Holgate? What about Christine Holgate? Anyway, so that was part of the backdrop to this of what happened to um, Morrison personally, and we had, a, we had a big role in that. All right, so Craig, you alluded to something before. That's what we want to talk about now. The, 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 the massive size of the crossbench in both, both houses of parliament, um, 15 independents in the House, massive crossbench in the Senate, the, the, the massive minor party vote um, or anti-major party vote, this is a whole new ballgame. Right, and people should look at that with confidence. And you and our motto is citizens taking responsibility. Don't down tools because the election's over. We must stay engaged. And our number one issue that we will be approaching the parliament. We've got all sorts of campaigns on the go for, and you'll hear us talk about this a lot. Financial victims like the Sterling First victims. Um, we're going to keep pushing on that. Uh, we're going to. We are definitely going to be leading the fight back against the the, the war rhetoric with China. Julian but Assange. Too. Julian Assange, um, as we did this week, everyone hit the phones on, on Monday to call Albo's office and he was flooded with calls. Yep. Tell, 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 congratulations, Albo. Now, when do you see Biden telling to, to let Julian Assange go? So we did that. But the number one issue is going to be the Postal Bank, right? This is an opportunity. People understand this is a policy we can win. You don't have to win an election to win a policy. This is a policy we can win. There's already broad cross-party support for this and now an even better makeup of parliament to um, achieve it. So our mobilisation is going to revolt. The first step, and it's going to be a big one for and until, it, until circumstances make a change, we are going to target a massive grassroots um, outreach to local government, yeah. right? Local communities all around Australia. Local government should be the number one um, level of government that supports a post office bank, mainly because it does two obvious things. It supports their communities, but it can support local government directly as a source of funding for local government, right? Um, I'll give you a stat here, Craig, from the Australian Local Government Association. Their bill to replace poor quality infrastructure around Australia is $51 billion. That is not in anyone's budget. That's not in a state government's budget. That's not certainly not in the federal government's budget, and it's not... And local government doesn't have the money. Um, if they to maintain existing infrastructure that it needs to be maintained, so it's acceptable, 106 billion to 138 billion. Where's that money going to come from? If we had a postal bank where local communities would be able to say to the big four banks who want to abandon them by shutting branches, oh well, you know, get lost and don't come back. Then we're going to take our money out of you and put it in the postal bank. And then with the multiplier effect of banking, right, 10 to 1 or let's just... Oh, well, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a debate, Robbie. Let's just be conservative, but let's say 10 to 1. Um, you'll have hundreds of billions of dollars to, available to be lent and, back into the local, those local communities, including to local government. And look at the example of the New, Ze New Zealand's Kiwi Bank, because yep. it is the, the, the type of bank that we're talking about, where you give the public an option to put their money in a guaranteed savings bank government guaranteed savings bank and people will flock to it. They do. Right, and this is where this, 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 this funny debate's been happening in our organisation because we, we're always conservative saying, oh, well, you've got a certain number of deposits in the bank, you can lend those out six or eight times or ten times. Now, Kingsley Lewis, our Senate candidate in New South Wales, says, oh, you know, it's not ten or... And a former banker. And a former banker says, it's not eight or ten, it's 50 times. In fact, it's unlimited. I mean, the point is that when you've got a government-guaranteed bank, yeah. it's unlimited. So you're talking, in terms of the potential of this bank, 
when you're talking 51 billion, that may sound a lot, or 106 billion. Not in terms of banking where you've got a guaranteed bank. And we're, uh, we were, we're not advocating doing it in an unlimited way, no, no, just no, to be no, careful. No. But no. just to be clear. But the point is, that's how the financial, the private well, sector works. And we're saying, um, let's just use the, the power of banking for the public good. Yeah, there's, right? many, there's, there's many limitations. You can't just look at money because you've got to look at where the materials are going to come from. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. our limitations in this country right now, as seen in the building industry, is there's not enough materials. There's just you know there's there's a there's a great constriction in the availability of building materials. If you went onto large uh, construction projects, you're going to have all sorts of constrictions in the materials in order to be able to build that. So you have to have a very decent forward-looking plan in order to not end up with lots we've of restrictions. And we've got to improve our own local manufacturing. Definitely. But what we do have here, Craig, we've still got a steel mill in Wollongong. You we've got all the iron ore in Australia. We've got a great policy proposal for the iron boomerang um, to actually mass-produce steel in Australia. That's ready to go. All it needs is the imprimatur and the yep. support of the federal government to say we're going to create these zones of uh, development where these places can be set up, uh, you know, steel mills and uh, and literally build the railway across the top of Australia. It's only requiring government consent. The money's already been raised for it. It's not even a question of finance. And then this kind, of, the, the infrastructure that's required will will at least be able to provide steel pretty easily for it. Oh yeah, at least first <laughs> stage steel. Yeah. All right. Now, I, what I want to do though, um, we'll give people. Uh, I'm not going to announce all the parameters of the uh, campaign to target local government today. We're going to put it out in details in press releases, etc. But I want to provide a list of information here for the viewers to appreciate just how much support there is for a postal bank, right? Not You've heard it from the Citizens Party. Um, hear it from other people. So, and this is just, these are, these are mainly Australian predicates, but you'll see over the last bit over a decade, the support has been growing. And I'm going to go back to starting in 2009. Um, that year, six prominent economists in Australia called for a comprehensive financial system inquiry, and there eventually was one in 2014. But, it, but in their call, they said such an inquiry should consider whether Australia needs a public bank operating through post offices. And those economists were Joshua Gans from University of Melbourne, Nicholas Gruen, Christopher Joy, who we've often had arguments with, Stephen King, John Quiggan, and Sam Wiley. Um, Anyway, here's a quote from what they, their whole list of things that, that they said a financial system inquiry should look at. Um, they, they said this, should citizens who feel unsure and unqualified to shop wisely in our financial markets be able to access basic savings payments and wealth management products that have been vouchsafed by governments as being safe and professionally managed? In this regard, is there a role for a publicly, for, for a publicly owned entity akin to Kiwi Bank in New Zealand, i.e. a postal bank, to offer essential services to, in Australia's financial sector that leverage off unique government infrastructure. Example, Australia Post, the tax system and the government bond market. And that's what they suggested. Now, they put that forward um, in July, around the 8th of July, uh, 2009. A week later, one of those economists, Joshua Gans, he wrote an article and he called it, uh, the headline was Mad Furor Surrounding the So-Called People's Bank. And he said, we put forward this proposal for a financial system inquiry. All the media wanted to talk about was the part about a public bank. And, and they reported as if we had advocated a people's bank. He said, never, we never even used the term a people's bank. And then he said this, 
we just asked if this should be on the agenda. And he quote, I should stress the word asked because this wasn't a policy proposal, but a policy area that might be evaluated. So to my surprise, it was to my surprise that I opened the newspaper to read People's Bank to Break Big Four in the Sydney Morning Herald on Wednesday morning. Thereafter, my five co-authors and I spent the day in the midst of a media frenzy about our proposal. It was all about the People's Bank, but to my knowledge, none of us had ever used that or any other name. To say this was unexpected is an understatement. Quote, the media and political reactions suggest that this idea, broad idea hit a nerve. While some opposition bordered on the hysterical, across the Tasman, i.e. New Zealand, where they recently established a government-owned bank, there was a show of support. Um, and yeah, the head of Kiwi Bank had actually backed it. So that, that, that's the key bit. They, put, they were just suggesting a list of things that could be looked at. That one hit a nerve because Australia, Australians are crying out for it. So that was 2009. In 2014, the Communications Workers' Union called for Australia Post, and the Communications Workers' Union represents Australia Post workers, to expand into banking. And that was in a submission to the um, Commission of Audit that year. Um, quote, Australia Post retail network should be given more freedom to leverage off of the trusted icon status, especially in rural and regional areas, and move into new services such as banking and financial services. Um, that was, so that was 2014. The Sydney Morning Herald reported on that in 2014, and the headline was, Can Australia Post Become the Next Big Bank? Um, and they quoted the, from the uh, uh, Communications Workers' Union, but then they wrote this, but would it serve a social purpose? University of Queensland economist John Quiggins says it would. Australian bank, quote, Australian banks are highly profitable and have been protected on a too-big-to-fail basis, he says. Australian banking consumers would benefit from an expansion of competition and from the option of a basic bank with a range of low-cost standard services. This is a challenging idea, but the alternative would be to down, a downward spiral as postal services are contracted. And that's true, as, and, and banking services also contracted. Then they quoted Terry Ashcroft from LPO Group, who said, um, this is the quote from the Sydney Morning Herald, Terry Ashcroft from LPO Group, an organisation looking after the interests of licensed post offices, says it would be a win-win for the federal government if Australia Post got its own banking licence. Quote, it would become a fifth pillar and the big banks wouldn't like it, he says. On you, Terry, dead right. Um, quote, but it would generate probably between $1.5 billion and $2 billion net revenue for Australia Post allowing it to subsidise a lot of its community service obligations while giving a huge return to the Australian people. The only loser in this would be the major banks. Yep. And who's going to cry for them? Senator Nick Xenophon, the article went on to say, has supported the idea of Australia Post having its own banking licence for a long time. So that was 2014. Jump to 2020, when a Labor Party think tank called Per Capita put out a report which had been commissioned by the Communications Electrical and Plumbers Union, which is the umbrella union to the Communications Workers Union. So this is 2020. Postbank filling a void, securing essential services. And I have to confess, it was this report that made me start looking more closely at a post office bank. And in looking at it, I had learned that Christine Holgate was in favour of a bank. And it was the only thing I knew about her when Morris threw her out of Parliament that day, mm -hmm. right? And that's what made me look twice. Anyway, at the time, Jim Chalmers, the Shadow Treasurer, who's now our Treasurer, he received the report favourably, calling it an important contribution which the ALP will examine. So we have to hold him to that. Um, and then the other two references that people should know in terms of you know, how significant it is, you've got to appreciate what, um, 
how sort of standard a postal bank is around the world. And the two examples I want to give is the, the most successful, spectacularly successful one is Japan Post Bank. Um, and this is, this is a bank that is responsible for Japan's post-war economic miracle, but it actually goes back to the 1870s and we've got an interview with Daisuke, the former direct, Deputy Director of the Ministry of Finance of Japan on our webs on YouTube about this. Um, it goes back to the 1870s, and it's the reason Japan has very, like almost no foreign debt because of the post bank. Um, and that's all internal, Robbie. It's all internal. And that's interesting. It's got a lot of debt. It's got the biggest government debt in the world, but it's owed entirely to the people of Japan. That's the point. And so the, when, the, when the Japanese government pays it, it stays in the country. Who cares, yeah. And the other one is Bernie Sanders and Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand in the United States actually have a bill for a postal bank over there. But they will not get that passed um, without weakening the power of Wall Street over the, the, the Congress. And that's a big fight. However, they're, they're fighting it. And they're trying to bring... America had a postal bank until the, um, the 1960s. Yeah. So, look, those examples, Craig, just show people this is an established idea, or as I... I I quote, as I, 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 my favourite quote, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Now, someone said that about <laughs> 20, 34 years ago, Robbie. So, I think it was do, me. Do we have the video? <laughs> uh, what, the first time I ever saw Craig Isherwood on video, the, the Citizens <laughs> Electoral Council were called then and produced a video called It's Up To You, True Blue. And uh, Craig sat there as a 28-year-old and said, someone once said there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And he'll we talk do, about we, the CEC. We do have that video. We do. Video. Maybe we can play it. Um, but that's absolutely true for the Postal Bank idea, right? So you see there, you know, there's lots of support for it in Australia. So this is what we'll be able to present to local government, state government, federal government, and actually win this policy. Someone once said, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Okay, Craig, let's move on to the, the next item. Yep. The common good is outlawed in Australia. And what I'm going to go through is an article from the latest issue of the Alert Service by uh, Elisa Barwick. Uh, what would it take for Labor to restore the public service? And I just want to give you some of the parameters of this article because people, um, the devil's in the detail in terms of how a country like Australia has been brought to its knees as evidenced by the way we didn't hand, you know, I mean, you know, the, um, what it took to handle the... the, the um, the pandemic, you know, uh, extreme measures that maybe wouldn't need to be extreme if our health system was in better shape. And so why is that? Why are our services in such poor shape, right? Why are licensed post office small businesses going broke, this sort of thing? Um, so what we have is a public service that over time has been hollowed out. And Elisa and I talked about this on the show um, a little while ago. Um, and one of the examples is the public health system. Right, it's 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 been in very poor shape. That you know, people see the crisis in the public. We don't have a like COVID's not the overwhelming factor at the moment. It's, it's we're back at a flu season, etc. And the, the hospitals are overwhelmed. Um, uh, state governments hustled to pick up the slack uh, for the health crisis, but all the, uh, the University of Queensland economics professor John Quiggan, who we quoted in the previous segment, there said all the federal government was able to do was sign checks and send in the military. Right. Um, Labor Party, in its campaign, had one of its promises was to, quote, plan to improve the public service. And that included a pledge to abolish arbitrary caps on staffing levels, reduce the reliance on external contractors, consultants and labour hire companies, 
converting them into permanent public service jobs and target the scourge of insecure work. And the two specifics there are the departments related to veterans affairs and aged care. Because in order to meet their, the, these, these governments have been cooking the books for ages. And so to down, they, they haven't wanted to, um, to look like they've been, they've been um, spending more money on, on the public service, right? Mm. And in fact, there's been this thing called the uh, efficiency dividend every year, 1% gets cut off the budget of these departments. And the way the departments have handled that is they've sacked staff and employed consultants, yeah, yeah. but often that's more that's actually ends up being more um, uh, expensive, and the labour hire stuff is even worse. And, and as Elise and I went through a few weeks ago, um, uh, you you have a situation where, say, in Veterans Affairs, you'll have a department that's got to deal with all these incoming calls from veterans trying to get all their their health needs sorted out and whatever. Um, there's a few people in that department that are sort of like the permanents, and they have these temp staff come in. And no, no sooner do they train them to be able to actually handle those calls, then they, get, then, then they lose them and other temp staff come in. And the poor veteran, right, who's just trying to get the bureaucracy sorted out, this is why he can't get it sorted out, yeah. right? And that's because the government has, has this artificial approach to governing because they're too scared to actually have a public service. Um, anyway, a lot of this comes down to economic neoliberal ideology as usual. And this particular one that relates to um, uh, uh, the public service is a thing known as a doctrine known as new public management. Started with Margaret Thatcher in the um, late 1970s, and it was all about reversing the growth of government and increased privatisation and globalisation. There was a 1991 paper called "A Public Management for All Seasons" by Oxford Professor of Government and Public Administration Christopher Hood who said business-style managerialism was to be applied to the public sector with the policy shift, and, and the policy shift was most coherently elaborated in New Zealand Treasury's 1987 Government Management Report. And, and now think of the ideology here, right? Oh, the private sector is perfect. The private sector is wonderful. The private sector is efficient. We need that efficiency in the public sector. So we've got to somehow apply that, yeah. right? And, and a lot of it was this ideology of, you know, um, you know, thinking uh, uh, almost essentially demonising government or, dismi or dismissing the capacity of government, wanting to downsize government um, so you can actually allow the, the private sector to do more, right, on, on the public purse, essentially. Um, as a result, the human capabilities of the public service required not only day-to-day uh, -day, but in the event of an emergency was stripped. Um, and we, we covered an example of this when we talked about Lismore, where the skill and knowledge of Lismore locals in the floods was superseded by centralised authorities with no connection to events on the ground. The more efficient and cheaper market approach is clearly not always the most effective. Outsourcing means the loss of vital capabilities of people who comprise a crucial part of governing the nation. As we found with the COVID response here in Victoria, Robbie, when it, when it broke out, there was no one in the public service that... Uh you know, because it had all been outsourced, it had been decentralised. Unlike New South Wales, Victoria was all decentralised and there was no staff in public health. P and PwC and Boston Consulting were given contracts to do things like contact testing yeah. and tracing. Yeah. What, ex what expertise did they have for well, contact testing and tracing? They had a big, they had a big demand for money, Robbie. Well, they, that is what they had a big demand for. Um, and unfortunately, guess what, Craig? The first, 
although I said Labor had this, had this election pledge, the first thing the new finance minister has said, Katie Gallagher, is Labor is not going to scrap those contracts with the big four consulting firms. Right, PwC, KPMG, etc. Because cetera. Robbie, there isn't a public service to, to, to be able to fill the need at the moment either. The problem is it's been so looted and broken down. And this does this go back to, to what's actually, how this has come into play because we've we've written a lot about this in the you know the economic uh, warfare unit of the Montparnasse Society deployed out of Britain into countries around the world in order to come up with this to, to promote these neoliberal ideas where big government is bad. That comes on the back of the 1972 takedown of the post-war Bretton Woods system. Yeah. Right. So you had you had decades following the Second World War of nation building and rebuilding. You had a controlled banking system. You had real development in this country. We built the Snowy Mountain scheme. Right. You had leaders that knew that, and it took a fair while for that to wind down until the point you had the 1972 takedown of the Bretton Woods system, where the, the Bretton Woods system. Then we went into a floating exchange rate system. This meant that our economy began the process of financial speculation. And what these guys saw, oh, look, there's a big fat cow there. We can start to loot. We can milk it. We can milk <laughs> that cow and we can start to take out of the public purse yep. what we private individuals need. So you saw then the takedown of all the productive industries like manufacturing and so forth in this country, agriculture being shut down. And you saw, you saw the financial speculation and looting method come through these neoliberal policies. Now we've looted the public service so much that we can't even supply the basic needs. And when I get on the phone to Centrelink to talk about someone's pension, I don't want, you know, I spend 45 minutes waiting to talk to someone. Yeah. Now, I'm one person. Multiply that by thousands of people. And that lack of productivity is worn by the individual on the basis oh the government shouldn't be providing these services but we're paying for those services exactly and it's through a, the taxes and right? you see a version of that in literally everything everything and it, you know look for example you know and the list more tragedies and gene robinson our senate candidate in western australia you know when a fire breaks out in Cogenup, you know three hours drive south of perth they can't go legally and put that fire out without ringing up the central operations in Perth to get permission. <laughs> now, by the time they go through the bureaucracy, if that fire hasn't been put out, right, it can literally explode in the region, so they ignore this stuff and they go and put it out anyway. But that's, this is the insanity of the, uh, you know, the, the centralisation of vital services because it is, quote-unquote, more cost-effective. It's not cost-effective for those that are losing their farms from the fires, but it's cost-effective from a budgetary measure, measures from in, internal to government departments where you're trying to downsize through this so-called efficiency gains, you know, the services that, that the, the, supposed, the departments are supposed to support. Well, we saw it in Lismore. We see it time and time again. And this is the... And the urgent area, Craig, is in health. Yeah. The, the, what we're seeing now in health is the cumulative effect of all of this, well, including insufficient funds, but the, the managerial style. Ambulances were on code red again last night here in Melbourne yeah, for yeah. an hour or so. And you had, and um, a few weeks ago, a senior trauma doctor at Melbourne's Alfred Hospital. Uh, he's the outgoing president of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, Professor John Wilson, quit his position in protest at um, how bad it's got, right? And hopefully... Um, that makes a difference, you know, in terms of, of uh, shocking people into some kind of action. But unfortunately, I think we have, to, we have to, the public has to know what they're demanding here, right? Because, you, you know, other, otherwise 
if um, if a Dan Andrews or whatever Premier or Prime Minister gets up there and says, oh, yeah, we're going to announce more money, that can look great like um, on paper, but how's it going to be spent? Because now we have all our hospitals are run by management, whereas they used to be run by the doctors themselves, right, etc. You've got layers, extra layers. It, it, it's all gone crazy. But one aspect, I want to, there's, a, there's a related policy here that came in in 1990, which sort of defines how this mentality has become so extreme. And it's called national competition policy. And it was designed by this former this Macquarie Bank executive, Fred Hilmer. And it determines how our economy is, won, is run down to the, the microeconomic level. But here's the bottom line with national competition policy. It became an impetus for privatising a lot of things. And the things that aren't privatised, they are government enterprises, business enterprises, or any kind of government enterprise, must function in such a way that it is not allowed to use the advantage of being government-owned to outcompete with the private sector. It has deliberately... The government business enterprises have to operate with their hands behind their back. The mafia would be proud, Robbie. Of course. This is a mafia operation. You know, the government's there to support the people. It can provide very, very high-quality services because it has that ability to provide services not for the short-term yep. gain of private individuals but for the long-term service of the general welfare of the population. And when these two things come into clash at the present time, because we're in a banker's dictatorship, which is run through this short-term profit motive and not through the idea of general welfare, people lose out. Well, that's people the point. die from this. No, and I'm going to give you a quote because this, is all, this also applies to the hospital system. Yeah. So um, uh, this, this comes from um, Susan Young of Deakin University, a paper she wrote called Outsourcing and Benchmarking in a Rural Public Hospital. Does economic theory um, provide the complete answer. And she talks about how the financial statements of hospitals even reflect the national competition policy. So Peninsula Health financial statement at the Frankston Hospital. This is what it said. The aim of the competitive neutrality policy is to ensure that where government's business activities involve it in competition with private sector business activities, the net competitive advantages to accrue to a government business are offset. In other words, we have to um, you know, add extra burdens or not do what we can do for you because we cannot be, afford to be seen to be doing something that um, outcompetes the private sector. But, but in this case, for you means better serving you, better serving your health needs. Hmm. This is what so these public sector institutions, public assets, cumulatively... This all comes under the category of the common good, Craig. And we've got neoliberal policies in Australia that have outlawed the common good. Well, another example, Robbie, I'll give it classically. You look at CSL laboratories, right? Yep. That should have been creating vaccines as a public institution. Now the government has to account for the money they pay for these private institutions. So when you go to get a flu vaccine, I'm not 65, so I have to go to the doctor, spend time in the waiting room, get a script from the doctor get charged by the doctor, go to the pharmacy, wait, literally, go, go to the pharmacy, get the fill script fulfilled, wait for that, make another appointment for the doctor to go and uh, you know, administer the vaccine, in this case the flu vaccine, that takes approximately an hour to two hours to do that. When we should have had a system where the doctors are all supplied 
free vaccines produced by a public company. Yeah. So all I have to do is go to the doctor, get the vaccine and walk out again. Now think about the productivity gain of that process. Yep. That isn't a productivity gain. That's a cost to the, to the public where, the, where these private institutions, these neoliberal uh, institutions are saying, no, 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 no. We're going to make the people pay. And we wonder why our cost of living is high. And you wonder why, yeah, exactly. Because look at that lost productivity of my, you know, it was, it was a wasted day or half a day. And the, another example is what's happening at the moment with um, energy prices in Australia, right? I'll give you a yeah. quick one. The Queensland government has announced a $175 rebate for the rise in electricity prices. But the Queensland government owns its electricity companies, Craig. They can't just cut the cost because... National competition policy says they have to be competitively neutral with private electricity providers on the grid in Victoria and New South and again, Wales. It was John Howard right. that decided to link the price of Australian energy to overseas yep, yep. markets because it had to be, you know, seemed to be competitive. So once upon a time we didn't do this. The government provided services. They were provided. They by by any, they were called inefficient in those days. Forty years later, we can say, man, we were kidding ourselves. By any measure. The government did its job. The private sector ideology that's come in hasn't improved it. We have to smash it. We have to get rid of this law. We have to go back to actual provision. Of, like the, the, the functionality of the economy is not, it's what comes first, not the ideology of these, of these um, uh, neoliberals. And so, Craig, what we have to do uh, in order to... One of the things we have to do in order to do that is take on banking, mm. right? That's a big one. And a postal bank would do that. We want a postal bank that breaks the rules of national competition and policy and says to the private banks, we're going to use every public advantage we've got to compete with you. You're going down. You lift your game on services. You look after your customers because they're going to come to us. They're going to get cheaper loans. They're going to get better services. They're not going to get foreclosed on. They're not going to lose their deposits. They're not going to lose their banking service in their town because we are a public bank and we're ultimately, first and foremost, a service. It breaks the public dictatorship. The bank is dictatorship. Right? It does. And when you break that dictatorship, like with a dictatorship, everything is controlled. So therefore, it's not just the financial system is controlled. It's the way that that every everything else is controlled through these manipulations of you know private interests uh, towards you know stealing from the public good, and that's the key here. Once the public realizes that for two decades, for two generations, not two decades, but for 40, 50 years, they've been duped, and they realize that a public bank can actually work. Mm -hmm. Then everything starts to break down in terms of this control over these, uh, you know, the, this looting policy of, of the public service. So, and we've seen it with COVID. You've seen the, the failure of the, the the healthcare system under COVID because of the looting that's taken place over the last forty years. And we're going to take it on. We'll and that's take it that, on. so. You know, we hopefully people are getting a greater in-depth sense of um, uh, how deep this goes and what we. Uh, what, why, why our policies are so are as significant as we say they are. All right, Craig, that said, um, thanks for joining us. I do us. think, Pete, Robbie, should subscribe, call in for a copy of the alert service because yep. like, we, it's got all the material that people really do need. Yeah, it's, it's in-depth. You, 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 know, it's, it's you want to know why everything goes wrong, read the alert service. Yep. And then you'll see how everything goes right. All right, <laughs> so like I said, Craig, thanks for joining us. Yep. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Uh, tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.